millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to the History Today podcast. In this episode, we talk to Calder Walton about his book, Empire of Secrets, British Intelligence, the Cold War, and the Twilight of Empire. But first, a quick word about the March issue of History Today, which is out now. In the cover story, Emma Griffin argues that the Industrial Revolution played a radical part in altering working people's attitudes towards sex. Elsewhere in the issue, Chris Millington looks at the roots of fascism in France. Helen Samuelly charts the movements of Russia's diplomats in London. Roderick Barnum describes Brazil's involvement in the First World War, and Liz James offers a short history of Byzantium. Now, back to the podcast. This episode, we speak to Calder Walton, the author of Empire of Secrets, British Intelligence, the Cold War, and the Twilight of Empire, which was awarded the Longman History Today Book of the Year Prize last month. Calder speaks here to History Today editor Paul Lay. Um, It seems appropriate when one thinks of 2013 and the revelations about large-scale internet surveillance, NSA, the National Security Agency in the United States, and Britain's uh, GCHQ, their role in this affair, um, that it should be a book about the origins of the secret state um, that is the Longman History Today Book Prize winner. And I just wanted to look at the genesis of the book, Calder, because you um, worked alongside Christopher Andrew, who That's right. many people will know is the, the doyen of historians of British intelligence. That's right, yeah. Well, really, um, I, I was doing my doctorate um, research under the supervision of Chris Andrew in Cambridge, and um, towards the end of my PhD, um, a number of, of, of files of records, of intelligence records, uh, became declassified. Um, involved uh, concerning the end of the British Empire, and the more I looked at these files, there seemed to be this sort of striking omission. Then, when I looked at the history books, uh, that is to say, even the best and most recently written books on the end of the British Empire barely mentioned British intelligence at all. And these were books written after the time when the re- records had been declassified. So I thought, well, hang on, this sounds like quite an interesting research project, and one thing led to another, and uh, six years later, I, I, I wrote the book. <laughs> and, and these are the archives that were held at um, Hanslop Park in Buckinghamshire. Well, those were some of them, yeah. There's yeah. been such a sort of uh, an avalanche of, of records into the uh, National Archives in Kew that it's hard to keep up uh, up with all of them. Yeah. Um, I started off looking at MI5 records, and MI5 was responsible for um, um, security intelligence in across the British Empire and Commonwealth. And this goes back um, to before the First World War. Since the First World War onwards, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and then um, I also started to look at um, records of the Joint Intelligence Committee, um, which was sort of um, then as now the high table of the British intelligence community. And these gave a sort of a helicopter view of, of um, concerns about national security um, as, the roles, as the years rolled by um, year after year in the post-war years. 
Um, and then, as you just said, then, then more recently, thanks to a recent court case, there was um, a number of records um, that, that came out on the um, from the colonial period um, in the so-called um, Hanslope Park archive, which I was able to to use in the book as well. So really, um, we've gone from um, famine to feast in terms of um, intelligence records on the end of the British Empire, but for some reason. Um, uh, you know, even as I said, the best recently published books on the British Empire continue to admit this. So my my book was really an attempt to um, to correct this misunderstanding and omission. Now the book is constructed um, chronologically, which is very helpful. I mean, one of one of the things when we think of awarding the London History Today Book Prize, it, it has to be a work of scholarship, but it's also one that someone who's not necessarily knowledgeable about the subject can can get into. Right. Um, and that's very helpful because attitudes in Whitehall particularly were quite unusual around about the time of the beginning of the First World War because you talk about espionage was seen in some ways un-British. That's right, exactly. It is sort of it's striking how late Britain, Whitehall in particular, uh, came to the intelligence game. I mean, it's sort of it's been a myth that since the Elizabethan period, Britain had a sort of famed secret mm-hmm. service, but actually we find out that it... That compared to the, the European powers, Britain came extraordinarily late to the intelligence game. And even when, when Britain did set up its intelligence services in 1909, um, they were essentially a man and dog operation. Um, so, uh, you know, as with so many things about the secret world in, in, in Britain, the myth is very different. The image is very different from the reality. And we can now look at the reality thanks to the records that are available. And what? What was the motivation behind that suspicion of espionage? Was it that it was ungentlemanly? I, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, that, that you know, gentlemen, as the, as the phrase went, gentlemen don't read each other's mail, and so this was just a sort of a sordid um, exploit that was probably you know best left to the European powers. <laughs> but I think mirroring the military achievements of yeah. the First World War, um, you do get the sense that uh, the intelligence services in Britain had a good war during the First World War, considering uh, where they came from? I think that's right. They had a good war in terms of just sort of, if you like, expansion, uh, massive expansion. I think that there were, you know, 10 MI5 um, employees in total, uh, including the caretaker uh, on the outbreak of the First World War. And by the end of the First World War, I think there were 850 or so. Um, So massive expansion of the sort of surveillance state, if you like during the First World War, absolutely. And what sort of things did they concentrate on then? What, what, what characterised the intelligence services during the First World War? Mail interception, essentially, um, was, was a big, was a, was a, a big um, area, uh, trying, to, trying to have a look at, um, in particular, Soviet, um, Bolshevik um, influence, German spies, of course, from the outbreak of the, the First World War onwards, was a, was a massive priority. Um, it was sort of, where are enemies? There are enemies everywhere, and where are they? That was the, the touchstone. And one of the points you make clear about the interwar period, you've already talked about this obsession with Bolsheviks and Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, we see uh, MI5 run down a great deal uh, during the 1920s. MI6 spends a lot of its time worrying about um, the Soviet Union. That's right. And, and what we find is it, it takes its eye off the balls for, as far as Nazi Germany is concerned. Absolutely. I, I think that the, on the outbreak of the Second World War, there were two desk officers in MI5. 
dealing with um, uh, counter espionage in the whole of Britain and in the empire. Uh, this is a sort of a striking example of under-resourced intelligence services. Um, and as you said, um, MI6, or SIS as it likes to be known, um, really concentrating on the, um, on the Soviet threat uh, for most of the 1930s instead of um, the Nazi threat uh, we can now see with, with hindsight. But again, we, we, we have, uh, as, as war comes along, um, it seems as though uh, the intelligence establishment came of age, you might say. That's right, exactly. I think that's the Second World War is when the British intelligence community did come of age, where the different services started working together in ways they previously haven't, hadn't, had not. Um, and really what we would, we would regard as the British intelligence community, foreign, meaning foreign intelligence, domestic intelligence, joint intelligence committee, um, and also, um, the huge, um, government code and cipher school, now called GCHQ, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. began working in, in ways previously it had not. And we see this develop further, and this is the real revelation of, of, of your book, I suppose, of Empire of Secrets, is the way that secret services work in Palestine, in Malaya during the 50s, and around the Gulf in the early 1960s. And that's, that's where so much of your new information is concentrated. That's right, exactly. It's um, looking at the role of the intelligence services in different case studies, looking from Palestine to Malaya to Kenya, uh, Cyprus, and then ending up in, in, in Aden. And I, I would like at some point in the future to take the study further on and look at the Falklands War and have a look at Hong Kong, of course. But I, I fear that this won't be for quite a while until the records are available simply, on those, simply on those periods. They don't exist at the moment. They're, they're, they, they're under lock they're and key in Whitehall, yeah. as far as I, I'm aware. And one of the really interesting points, I think, and again, a very revelatory point, is the way that the intelligence services incorporate the newly, the services of the newly independent states and the way they get them on side through subterfuge, through um, That's right. engagement. Um, it's, it's an extraordinary story. That's right. I mean, you know, it's been widely discussed by historians uh, in, in the past how how successful, at least in comparison to other European powers, Britain was at maintaining links with its former colonies. You know, we think of the game of cricket as being sort of a classic example of the way in which Britain sort of managed to export a, sport, a sporting culture to different parts of the, of the Commonwealth. But I, I would add, after doing all this research, that the intelligence relationship is equally successful, albeit that it's hidden um, behind closed doors, that this intelligence sharing relationship between Britain and its former colonies that entered into the Commonwealth um, really meant that there were sort of um, bonds that existed between Britain and those countries that were free from erosion. Um, and this is sort of one of the great um, unwritten um, chapters of, of the post-war colonial history, in my view. And you make clear, too, in a very interesting piece of, of, of continuity of that between Bletchley, uh, which has become this almost mythologized. Mm. Uh, part of Britain's intelligence history and what goes on or what at least has gone on at, at GCHQ that there's, a, that there's a, a connection very strong chronological connection between the two Absolutely well it, uh, GCHQ was the successor to Bletchley and, and this is again the, sort of the starting point for the research um, when, I, when I started this research was that you know you pick up pretty much any, any, any uh, history book on the Second World War and you'll see a reference to Bletchley Park now and rightfully so. 
uh, you pick up any any um, history book on the, the Cold War or on the history of Britain's end of empire, and I'll guarantee you, you won't find a, a reference to GCHQ. So we're supposed to believe from those history books that um, British codebreakers simply um, downed their tools in 1945, which, of course, they did not. Um, and what makes it all the more striking, and this gets back to what you were sort of talking about at the beginning, which is um, with all these revelations um, um, from Snowden, you know, uh, 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 during the, this time, at this point, um, we read about the revelations of GCHQ and S NSA today, um, and yet when we look at the history books, we're supposed to believe that the NSA and GCHQ weren't active, but of course that's not the case. And of course, uh, by the nature of, of being a historian of intelligence, um, there's always new revelations to look forward to. That's right. I think so. And, and as I said, I'm looking forward to, to writing the second edition of this book when hopefully more revelations will be revealed and I'm crashing out into the archives. And also, you're not afraid to ask uh, big questions about this, as well as, as, well as the, the very dramatic and fascinating narrative story. There's also philosophical questions about it, but what is intelligence for, um, which, which, which you ask. I mean, what is it for? And what evidence does it does it generate and how does that change over time exactly well i mean i i did spend quite a long time sort of thinking about this but what is the purpose of the intelligence services that were in all said and done and one of the, the most striking things that i found during the research was that actually time and time again what you find in the post-war period is that what the british intelligence services were doing was actually calming down fears within Whitehall and, by extension, in, in Washington, D.C. That's to say, one of the big, the big fears at the time was whether the leaders of various national independence movements were, so, were, were Soviet-sponsored, whether, whether they were communists. And, and what the British intelligence services were able to do time and time again is to prove a negative and to say they had nothing on their records to suggest that these various leaders had anything to do with communism. And that really what came as a sort of a sort of great surprise when I was doing this research that they would be in this business of actually calming down fears when I thought, uh, you know, sort of perhaps cynically that they would be in the business of, if anything, sexing up the dossier, to use a, a phrase closer mm -hmm. to our own time. Well, it's certainly a book that, um, that sheds lots of new lies and lots of uh, new perspectives on this. It manages, as I said before, to combine scholarship with, with real accessibility. And I recommend anyone, everyone, to read Empire of Secrets, British Intelligence, The Cold War and the Twilight of Empire by Calder Walton, which is the Longman History Today Book Prize winner for 2014. So thank you, Calder. Thank you very much, Paul. Thanks very much.